Turn to Ezekiel chapter 47, the Old Testament book of Ezekiel chapter 47. One thing that God taught me very early in my ministry is that none of us are the brightest bulbs in the candelabra, and God knew that. You know, he knew that. And yet he wants us to understand his word, and I believe he has written his word in such a way that we can understand the major principles. I hear this all the time, I can't understand the Bible. Yeah, you can. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to teach us and to instruct us. Jesus promised us that in John chapter 14. But in order to help us understand his book, I have learned that God wrote his word like a giant picture book. Now we have eight grandchildren, and our youngest grandchildren can't read yet. But if they pick up a picture book, if that picture book is illustrated in a, in a creative way, even our little grandchildren who can't yet read can open that up and they can tell you the story by looking at the pictures. Understand? Well, again, God knew that some of us, me included, were not the brightest bulbs. And so he has filled his word with pictures, illustrations to help us understand the most important concepts in Scripture. In Ezekiel 47, I believe we have one of those pictures. It is a picture of a wonderful, glorious river. And I believe it's a very clear instruction to us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we get into it, let me just say that every portion of Scripture has three possible applications. There's the historical application, there's the doctrinal application, and there's the inspirational application. Well, with Ezekiel 47, the historical is very easy. The entire book of Ezekiel was written during the Babylonian captivity. So it was in the land of Babylon during the captivity, somewhere in the mid-600s B.C. So the historical is easy. The doctrinal is not quite as easy because there's some controversy about what this river represents. Some theologians believe that this river in Ezekiel 47 is a symbol of the river of life that we find in Revelation chapter 22. Others believe, however, that this river in Ezekiel 47 is a type or a symbol of the millennial kingdom. And the river here is a river that's going to form in Jerusalem at the rebuilt temple that will flow down to the Dead Sea. And when it reaches the Dead Sea, some miraculous things happen during the Millennial Kingdom. I'll let your pastor tell you the proper interpretation of that, all right, sometime. The inspirational application, however, is also easy. It's a river. Rivers are filled with water. Whenever you find water in Scripture, it is almost always symbolic of the ministry of the Holy Spirit or the ministry of the Word of God, or the ministry of the Word of God through the Holy Spirit, or the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. But somehow, someway, whenever you find water in the Bible, it almost always is some type or symbol of the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's true in Ezekiel 47. It's a beautiful, marvelous, powerful picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
Now, before I read the text, I want to ask you a question now, and then I'm going to ask you at the end of the message as well. And that question is this, how deep are you? Ezekiel chapter 47, would you look with me at verses 1 through 12? Afterward, he brought me again under the door of the house, and behold, the waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without under the utter gate by the way that looked eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits. He brought me through the waters, the waters were to the ankles. Again he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters, the waters were to the knees. Again he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters, the waters were to the loins. Afterward he measured a thousand. It was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi, even unto Engalium. There shall be a place to spread forth their nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. But the miry places thereof and the marishes thereof shall not be healed. They shall be given to salt. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaves shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof, there be, fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. The river of the Holy Spirit. The first thing I want you to see, and I hope you'll take notes. Note-taking okay, Pastor? Is that legal here? All right. If you can, take pen, pencil, crayon, lipstick, watercolor, something. Prick your finger, write in blood. Take something and write down some notes if you would. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Here we see the experience of the river's depth. The experience of the river's depth. Remember, we're talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 3. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits. He brought me through the waters. The waters were how deep? That was really bad. Let's try that again. The waters were to the ankles. All right, the water is ankle deep. I would submit to you tonight that that is a graphic picture of the typical Christian. Ankle deep. Oh, they're in the water. They got saved. They've been born again. And they come to church on Sunday and they splash around in the water a little bit. Isn't it true that on a hot, sultry summer day, there's hardly anything more refreshing 
than going down to the creek, taking off your shoes and socks, rolling up your pant legs and kicking around in the creek. How many of you have done that before at one time? Oh, yeah, almost all of you. Isn't that refreshing? It's wonderful. But you know what? It's really tough to swim in ankle-deep water. I mean, it really is. Don't try it. So many Christians are saved and born again. They come to church on Sunday. They shake hands. They hug a few people. They sing the songs. They might even raise a hand, even in a Baptist church. And they kick around in the waters, and then on Monday morning, they go about their life as if the Holy Spirit had no control on their life whatsoever. If you were to look at their life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, there is absolutely no difference between them and the folks in the world. And then the next Sunday, they come back to church, splash around in the waters of the Holy Spirit again, and then they go about their life as if God had no control on their life at all. We have a lot of ankle-deep Christians in our churches today, folks. But then it goes on. It says in verse 4, Again he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters. The waters were now where? To the knees. It is now knee-deep. It is a fearful and awesome thing when God gets a hold of your knees. Can I get an amen out of that? Sometimes God brings us through experiences when we have no choice whatsoever but to pray. And we say this, well, I guess the only thing left to do is to pray. What a terrible thing to say. That ought to be the very first thing we do, but often it is a last resort. But God often brings experiences, trials, and testings into our life to teach us that some battles can only be fought on your knees. How many of you have been through those experiences? Oh yeah, most of you. Knee deep. But then it goes on. Second half of verse 4. Again he measured a thousand and brought me through. The waters were where? To the loins. That's waist deep. We are now waist-deep in the water. Now, what do we know about waist-deep water? When you come into water that is waist-deep, you begin to lose control. The water begins to have as much control on you as you have on the water. Now, you wouldn't, look at, you wouldn't know it now by looking at me, but I used to run track. In fact, I was fairly good out in California running track. I was a sprint person. Hated long distance, but I was pretty good at sprinting. Now, that was years ago. Today, if you would put me up against a world-class sprinter today, I would just eat his dust. That's, that's all. Unless you put both of us in a swimming pool that's waist deep. And you know what? That world-class sprinter and I have about the same advantage because the water is now controlling us as much as we are controlling the water. What does it mean then to become waist deep in the water? It's when God puts you and I in an experience and we begin to lose control. It's frightening, isn't it? Isn't it frightening when we begin to lose control and we find something that is just beyond us and we finally have to come to a place where we really surrender? I was in the Philippines uh, three years ago, I guess it was. We were in the Philippines, and 
we, uh, we hiked up into a, a very, very remote uh, village on a remote island in the Philippines. I mean, it was like getting in a time machine and going back 300 years. It was absolutely primitive, no electricity anywhere. Anyway, as we hiked in, it began to rain, torrential tropical rains. In fact, it rained 13 inches in 24 hours when we were there. And as we marched into the jungle, we came through several little streams, and some of them were ankle-deep and some of them were knee-deep. Well, we got into the village. It rained torrentially all night long, all night long. Well, there was a river not far from the little village that we were in, and all night long we could hear that river rise. We could hear the sound of that river. And about 5 o'clock in the morning, we all looked at each other and we said, we've got to get out of here. We're not going to get out. And so we come back down to that river that was probably knee-deep when we came through, and now it's about waist-deep, but it is raging. And I mean raging. Well, we had a guy in our group that was an ex-football player from the University of Tennessee. He was one big dude, man. He was muscular. His thighs were about as big as my waist. He was just this huge guy. And so we come to the edge of the river, and it's it's only waist deep, but it's raging. And we're all going, how are we going to get to the other side? And somebody said, well, we've got to get a rope over to the other side, tie it to a tree, tie it off so we can hold on to the rope. And we're standing there. How are we going to do it? Well, Mr. Tennessee, Mr. Football Player, says, I'll take it across. We said, no, no, no. That, man, it's too swift. It's too powerful. I'll take it across. And so he takes the end of the rope, goes into the river. Well, that was the last we saw of him for a while. He was swept about three miles down the river. He was okay. The natives finally dished him, you know, fished him out. But he found that even waist-deep water, when it's running very strong, can take complete control of you. It's very frightening when we come to an experience that's beyond our power and beyond our strength, and we simply cannot handle it anymore. And sometimes we think that that's the worst thing that's ever happened in our life. And listen, folks, many of you have learned this. Often that's the best thing that ever happened in your life. When you finally realize, I don't have enough strength. I can't do this in my strength, in my wisdom, and my knowledge. I can't do it. I can't handle it. I am not sufficient. And I think God in heaven is saying, oh, I've been waiting so long for you to say that. And we come to a place where we completely and totally surrender to his power and to his wisdom. And we go into the water up to our waist. But then it doesn't end there. It says in verse 5, Afterward he measured a thousand. It was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. Oh, if you're looking for a picture of the Spirit-filled Christian. Here it is. What a beautiful picture of the spirit-filled, spirit-controlled Christian. Because what do you have to do to swim? You have to let go of everything else, right? Can you swim when you're standing on the bottom? Can you swim when you're holding on to a branch on the side? The only way you can swim is to let go of everything else and thrust yourself out and trust the water. You see, what a picture 
of the Christian who has come to the place in their life where they are absolutely surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the indwelling filling of God's Holy Spirit. And they become a swimmer. And you know, if the water's swift, you go wherever that water takes you, like the guy from Tennessee. And, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you are swimming, the only part of your body that is visible is your head. And according to Scripture, our head is Jesus Christ. And so the person who is totally filled with the Holy Spirit, a swimmer, if you will, you see the Holy Spirit reflected in them. Oh, pastor, what could happen to Columbus, Ohio, if Fellowship Baptist Church was filled with swimmers? Absolutely, completely surrendered and controlled by the Holy Spirit in their life. Would that God would fill our churches with swimmers. The experience of the river's depth. Let me hurry to the second point. The next thing I want you to see is the effects of the river's flow. The effects of the river's flow. What does this river do? Because it is a miraculous river. Well, the first thing it does is it brings life. Look at verse 7. Now, when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees. Something had happened. Now, I subscribe to that interpretation of this chapter that this is a picture of the millennial kingdom and that this river is actually a river that's going to spout out from the temple in Jerusalem and it's going to flow down to the Dead Sea. Now, I've got a real tough question for you, Pastor. I'm really going to tax the minds of your congregation. Is that okay? All right, here we go. You ready? Tough question. Why do they call the Dead Sea the Dead Sea? Because it's... You are so good. You are so good. They call it the Dead Sea because it's dead. There's nothing alive. How many of you have been there? The Israel and been to the Dead Sea. All right, you know what I'm talking about. Now, there's some little microorganisms living in there, but that's all. There's no fish, there's no plant life, there's no life like we would see at any other piece of water. And the strange thing is, even if you're in a desert, if you come up to a lake or a sea, the first thing you see before the water is the green vegetation all around the lake because they draw their life from the lake, from the water. But that's not the case with the Dead Sea. You come out of Jerusalem and you go down, 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 and all of a sudden you see the Dead Sea, but there are no trees, there's no life, because the chemicals in the water not only kill everything in the water, it kills everything outside of the water as well. It's dead. But it says, now when I had returned, behold, something has happened because of this river. Look at verse 8. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be what? Healed. Look at verse 9. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. And look at the last part of verse 9. I love this. 
and everything shall live whither the river cometh. Did you get that? Everything the river touches comes to life. That's soul winning. That's evangelism. Listen, every one of you here tonight who is born again, every one of you at one time, one place in your life, somebody, someplace brought the river to you. And you were dead in trespasses and in sins. And somebody gave you a track with the living water. Someone gave you a testimony with the living water. Somebody brought you to church and you heard a sermon about the living water and you that was dead in trespasses and in sins came in contact with the Holy Spirit of God and He made you alive. Isn't that something? Everything the river touches shall come to life. Ah. See, here's God's plan for the church. You know, of course, that all of us are surrounded by a bunch of dead people, right? You know what the Bible teaches? You live in a neighborhood of dead people because they're dead in trespasses and in sins. You live in an office or you work in an office filled with dead people unless you're in a Christian organization and sometimes I wonder about some of those. But you see, somebody touched you with the river. You came to life. Life came into you. And then you take that river and you take it with you and everything the river touches shall come to life. And the Word of God expands and more and more people are saved and there's more and more life. That's the effect of the river's flow, life. But secondly, and I'll dwell on this just for a moment, The second effect of the river's flow is fruit. Look at verse 12. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. Down there at the Dead Sea where there was nothing but death and emptiness, now there is life and not only life, there is fruit. Obviously. One of the results of the effects of this river's flow is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's another whole series. I'll let your pastor preach that as well. A natural effect of the river's flow is the people that have been touched by this river begin to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But then there's a third effect of the river's flow. It's healing. Look again in verse 12. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for me, whose leaves shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary. We'll come back to that in a moment. And the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for what? Medicine. Healing. Now, today there is so much emphasis on physical healing. You turn on the TV almost any night, go to any of the Christian stations, you hear those guys late at night going, sow your seed, send me your seed. I want you to sow your best seed. My jet needs fuel. I need new tires on my limo. Send me your seed. And if you'll send me your seed, you'll never be sick again. You'll be healed. Well, I believe in divine healing, do you? I just don't believe in divine healers. 
But I believe that God heals, I do. So much emphasis on healing today, but there is a healing that is far more important than physical healing. Spiritual healing. And did you know that God has called every one of us to a ministry of healing? Did you know that? Do you believe in a sovereign God here at Fellowship Baptist? Do you believe in a providential God? See, I thought you did. That means if we believe in a sovereign God, it is not an accident that you sat where you sat tonight. Well, I know you made a choice, but somehow God puts all that stuff together. And I believe that you sat where you are seated right now tonight, and possibly you are seated where you are seated because someone around you needs some healing. Now that healing may come in just the form of, hey, I love you and I'm praying for you. Maybe just a hug around the neck and you tell them that you love them. It may be finding out what their needs are and calling them this week or going over to their house and visiting them. But there is to be continual healing going on within the body of Christ. Among the members of the body, bringing healing to each other as the Holy Spirit of God leads us to people who have needs around us. See, a mark of the Holy Spirit's filling and dwelling is that we become more concerned about other people's needs than our own. Scripture tells us that we are to esteem others how? Better than ourselves. And so God has called us to a ministry of healing and encouragement. And this river, the Holy Spirit flowing through us and out through us can bring healing to other people around us. The effects of the river's flow. Now I've got just one more point. Before I get there, let me ask you a question. If these are the effects of the river's flow, life, salvation, people being saved, people being born again, fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, healing, ministering to each other in a healing atmosphere, why is it that we don't see more of the effects of the river's flow? Why don't we see more people saved? The typical fundamental church in America today is stuck. They're plateaued. They haven't grown in years. That's the typical Bible-believing church in America. I know there are exceptions, but the typical Bible-believing church in America today hasn't grown for years. Why? And instead of healing with each other, we bicker with each other and fight with each other and gossip about each other. And sometimes, folks, some Christians I've known have borne anything but the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So why don't we see more of the effects of the river's flow? Because we don't understand the essence of the river's power, and that's the third point. Where does this power come from? The essence of the river's power. Well, look at verse 12. And by the river, upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months. Look, 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 look. Because. Oh, we got the cause here. Here's the reason why this river brings life and, and fruit and, and healing. And because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary. Hmm. Wow. Well, that means we've got to go back to verse 1 because that's where we find the house or the sanctuary. What is the source of this river? 
We can't understand the essence of the river's power until we find out what its source is. Well, verse 12 says it's the sanctuary. Verse 1, afterward he brought me again under the doors of the house. And behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house, for the forefront of the house. Now, what is this house? If my interpretation is correct, and I think it is, that's the rebuilt temple in the millennial kingdom where Jesus will establish the throne of David again. And the central focus of that rebuilt temple will be a throne. You see, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to establish a throne. Listen, the last time he was here, we saw him battered and bruised and bloodied and surrendered. The next time we see him, he's not going to look like that. He is coming back to conquer. And he's going to establish a throne. And for 1,000 years, he is going to rule and reign with what? A rod of iron. Let me tell you why we are not experiencing enough of the effects of the river's flow. We have forgotten that he has come to establish a throne. Listen, folks, this may be a newsflash. When Jesus Christ came into your life when you got saved, he did not come into your life to establish a democracy. He came to establish a dictatorship, a benevolent dictatorship, but he demands that he be Lord of all. Can I get an amen on that? But you see, we've forgotten this whole concept of the throne On June 2nd, 1953, something fascinating happened at Westminster Abbey in London, England. June 2nd, 1953, Westminster Abbey, thousands of people crowded into capacity inside that great church and then thousands outside and millions watching by television. And a young woman, 25 years old, by the name of Elizabeth, was led down the ancient aisle of that church to a magnificent throne. She was followed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Elizabeth came, and she was seated on the throne. And the Archbishop of Canterbury reached to the side, and he picked up a priceless throne, and he put it on her head. And he said, I crown you Queen Elizabeth II. And the thousands of people gathered inside and outside spontaneously began to cheer, God save the queen! God save the queen! God save the queen! It was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth who still sits on the throne today. Now that was 1953. She hasn't made a decision since. She hasn't. Because England operates on what's called a constitutional monarchy. Oh, they have a queen. Someday they'll have a king. But it's a figurehead. There's pomp and splendor. They sing songs about her. When they come before her, they bow before her. They just don't allow her to make any decisions. When we went to Iraq a few years ago, the United States contacted the British government. Will you go with us to Iraq? They didn't ask the queen. They asked the prime minister in the parliament. They didn't ask the queen. She's a figurehead. My friend, 
That's the way a lot of people treat Jesus. They sing songs about him. They bow down before him. They just don't let him make any decisions. They want to be in control. They want to run the show. They don't want him to be on the throne of their life. They don't want to be surrendered to him on a daily basis. They don't want to surrender their daily life, their daily decisions, their family, their finances, their time, their resources. They don't want to surrender. They want to be in control. And that's one of the reasons why we don't experience more of the effects of the river's flow is because we have forgotten the source and it is the throne of God. He wants to establish a throne in your life and in my life. That's the source, but what about the course? Look at the end of the verse, the first verse of chapter 47. It says, And the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. The very first place that this river flows is by the altar. What's the altar? It's the place of sacrifice. Now to us, in this dispensation, in this time, where is the place of sacrifice where we worship? It's the cross. The altar. Where Jesus Christ offered himself on the altar of God for our sins. He sacrificed himself willingly for all of us. And then he calls us to take up the cross. Matthew 10.38 is a wonderful verse. You've heard of the law of first mention in Bible interpretation, Bible study. The law of first mention simply means that when you find a word or a concept for the very first time in Scripture, the very first time bears very special significance. Watch when God introduces something the first time. Matthew 10.38 is the very first time we find the word cross in the Bible. He has just picked his disciples, 12 of them, and they are thinking, this is so cool. Because everywhere they go, there are multitudes following them. And Jesus is healing people and raising people from the dead and feeding 5,000, you know, from a little boy's lunch. And they're thinking, this is just way cool. And then in Matthew 10, Jesus stops them in his tracks, in their tracks. And he says, all right, guys, listen up. I want you to listen. You cannot follow me. You cannot be my disciple unless you are willing to take up your cross. Now see, the cross to us often is just something pretty. It's a, it's, a, it's a piece of jewelry. It's something we hang around our neck. It's something we put on top of the church. It's pretty. It's beautiful. We like it. But that's not the way it was to the disciples. They weren't wearing crosses around their necks yet. There was one thing that they did on Roman crosses. What was it? They executed people in horrible, horrible, painful, excruciating deaths. And so Jesus says in Matthew 10, and then over in John chapter 14, he's even more specific about this thing of the cross. And he says to his disciples, you are not my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You will not be my disciple unless you take up your cross. And folks, People who take up a cross have no rights whatsoever. Am I right? Crucified people don't have rights. But you see, today in America, everything's about rights. My rights, your rights, children's rights, women's rights, this right, that right. Again, we want our own way. And the church has introduced a new improved cross. Isn't that great? 
There's a new improved everything, you know. You got new improved toothpaste, new improved dishwasher soup and soap and, and dishwasher soup, no. Soap. New improved car. Everything is new and improved. The church in America today has introduced a new improved cross. You see, the old cross demanded death and suffering sometimes. The old cross demanded complete, absolute surrender and consecration. But the new cross that's been introduced in the church of America today, the new cross promises comfort, entertainment. The new cross says, let me entertain you, da-da-da-da, you know. The new cross says, we'll never ask you to sacrifice. The new cross preacher, and you know this, the new cross says, you just come when it's convenient for you. We don't want to put you out. We don't want you to be inconvenienced. You just tell us what you want and we'll give it to you. That's the new and improved cross. It's only one problem. It's not the cross of the book. And it's a powerless cross. It's an empty cross. It's a cross that has no power whatsoever to change a lost and dying world. The cross of Jesus demands our all, our everything, unconditionally. And we will never experience the effect of the river's flow until we establish a throne in our heart, until we come to the cross and surrender everything. And then finally, and I'm finished, the source is the throne, the course is the cross, and then finally the force. It's a strange river. I don't know whether you noticed it or not, but it continues to get deeper and deeper and deeper when we're first introduced to it. It's knee-deep, and then it's up to the waist, or it's ankle-deep, then knee-deep, and up to the waist, and then finally it's rivers to swim in. It keeps getting deeper and deeper, and yet... I don't find anywhere where there are any tributaries added. Now, if you go to the Mississippi River and you keep going north and north and north and north and north, you'll find the source. And it's just a small thing, a small river. And as you go downstream, little rivers and creeks are added to it. And as it goes down hundreds and hundreds of miles, thousands of little creeks and streams keep going and adding into it. And as you go farther downstream, the Mississippi River gets deeper and wider and more powerful because things keep being added to it. But this river gets deeper and deeper and deeper, but I don't find anything being added to it. Oh, this is some book. If this river is the Holy Spirit... You see, when you get saved, you get the whole package. You know, a lot of people teach today that when you get saved, you get saved on the 99-cent menu, you know? You just barely get saved. You get just enough of the Holy Spirit to get into heaven. But then if you live a good life and sacrifice and pray, then you get biggie-sized, you know? You get more of the Holy Spirit, more of the Holy Spirit, more. Listen, that's not what the Bible teaches, my friend, the question is never how much of the Holy Spirit you get. The question is always how much of you does the Holy Spirit get. And this is part of spiritual maturity. This is part of the spiritual growth process. 
When we get saved, it's natural to be ankle deep. And then God brings us through circumstances that teaches us to pray and depend upon Him and we become ankle deep. And then God brings us to circumstances where we are completely out of control and we're up to the waist and we surrender it all to God. And hopefully, we come to the place where we are swimmers just completely surrendered to his spirit and we've just surrendered all and we've just let go of everything and we go wherever the Holy Spirit tells us to go and we do whatever the Holy Spirit tells us to do that's spiritual maturity but it comes not by getting more of the Holy Spirit it comes by our surrender to him I began by asking you a question remember what it was How deep are you? And I end by asking the same question. How deep are you? Ankle deep? Just kind of playing around the Spirit of God. Knee deep? That's great. That's wonderful. But are you still in control of most of the decisions in your life? Waist deep? You tonight are going through an experience, either individually or as a family, and you are struggling with control. You're struggling with giving up to His Spirit. Or tonight are you a swimmer? I preach this message in, I believe, the second largest Baptist church in the state of Ohio a few years ago. I finished the message, gave the invitation, and God was so gracious. So many people came, and they just said, we want to be swimmers. We just want to be swimmers. And I was talking to people down in front, and finally a man comes walking down the aisle, and tears are just streaming down his cheeks, and he comes up to me, and he takes my hand, and he says, Brother Bernie, he says, I'm one of the officers in this church. I said, well, that's great. He says, oh... He says, I wish I could be a swimmer. I wish I could be a swimmer. I'm one of the leaders in this church. I'm one of the officers, and I wish I could be a swimmer. And I said, well, what's holding you back? Right here, right now. Let's surrender whatever it is you're hanging on to. And he turned around and walked back up the aisle. I have no idea what it was. But something had such a hold on that man's life that he was unwilling to surrender it to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to swim, you just let go of everything else and launch out and trust him. Where are you tonight? How deep are you?